Welcome to WFUV's What's What. It's Wednesday, July 5th. What's What is a daily podcast that explores current events, culture, news, and hot topic issues in the New York tri-state area. And includes features and interviews exclusively from WFUV. I'm David Escobar. And I'm Maya Sargent. And here are today's headlines. The preliminary results for New York City's primary election are being released today. Most votes have already been counted, but today's results factor in ranked choice votes that New Yorkers cast at the polls. The Associated Press says that ranked choice voting will be used to decide the District 19 Democratic contest in Northeast Queens. The outlet also says ranked choice voting could be needed to decide three other races, including the District 9 Democratic race. Criminal justice activist Yusef Salam currently leads that contest. New York City is launching a pilot program this summer to reduce package theft. The program called Locker NYC will install public package lockers in 15 city streets with 24-7 availability. It's an effort to minimize package thefts and reduce delivery truck trips. An increase in shark bites have been reported on the coast of New York. There were four non-life-threatening bites this past holiday weekend. Authorities say that shark populations may be increasing because of efforts to clean up the water. Shark bites are actually still considered rare, but swimmers are advised to take precautions. Officials say it's best to stay in groups close to shore and away from things sharks like to eat, including seals and fish. Last week, the Supreme Court declared that race-conscious admissions programs at Harvard and the University of North Carolina are unconstitutional. It's also known as affirmative action, which is a long-standing admissions policy that has been a cornerstone of higher education. So WFUV's Jay Doughty spoke with Progressive Policy Institute scholar Richard Kalenberg from Georgetown's School of Public Policy to learn more. So, Mr. Kalenberg, do you think it's fair to say that this decision is expected to lead to a less diverse student body at elite institutions? I don't think so in the long term, at least. Uh, In the short term, I think that's right, that when when states have banned affirmative action at public universities, which they started doing in the 1990s, there was an initial drop in Black and Hispanic enrollment. But as those universities were able to implement new systems of admissions that Uh, in some cases got rid of unfair preferences for wealthy families, like the legacy preferences and the preferences for children of faculty. And as they began to give a bigger boost to economically disadvantaged students of all races, you saw the Black and Hispanic numbers go back up. And so uh, it, it may take a little bit of time, but in the long term, I think we will have more diverse universities in the sense that they will be both racially and economically diverse as opposed to just racially diverse. And in a rather scathing critique, Chief Justice John Roberts characterized Harvard's and UNC's admissions process as elusive, stating their inclusion of race perpetuates stereotypes and is in conflict with the values of the Constitution. On the other hand, Justice Sotomayor emphasized in her dissent that true equality cannot be achieved through race blindness. So with these perspectives in mind, can you shed some light on the political philosophy that underlies this decision? Yeah, so there's there's a stark contrast in, in the views. And so that's why I think it's so important uh, that universities not just give up on diversity, but instead find new paths to diversity that avoid the, the problems that Justice Roberts sees with using race specifically, but also honors uh, Justice Sotomayor's important point that we need to have diverse classes. And 
in particular, I recommend the use of certain economic indicators that reflect our nation's history of racial oppression and racial discrimination. So two I'll mention quickly. One is wealth, uh, which is your net worth. There's an income gap in America between black and white people, but there's a huge wealth gap. And that's because uh, wealth is handed down from generation to generation. And it, uh, you know, redlining, slavery, segregation, all contribute to the wealth gap. So if you give a break to low wealth students, then you're going to create economic and racial diversity. And the other thing quickly is uh, what sort of neighborhood uh, a student grows up in. So it turns out that because of discrimination in the housing market, uh, middle-class, middle-income Black people tend to live in neighborhoods with higher poverty rates than low-income white people. And so if you count the neighborhood situation uh, and wealth alongside of things like income and education level of the parents, that, that's, a, that's a path to creating genuine economic and racial diversity. Would you argue that the approach you just outlined is the best way to assess race and merit in unison? Or does the college admissions process vary from school to school? There's going to be a certain amount of discretion in any admissions process. But to the extent that universities can make clear, we want students who've overcome obstacles to apply and to talk about how their academic record should be thought of in the context of what hurdles they've had to overcome in life then I think we can create a fair, more meritocratic system that that actually honors you know, how far a student has come, not just where they, they ended up. Thanks for your time, Mr. Kalenberg. I'm Jay Doherty, WFUV News. That was WFUV's Jay Doherty talking with Richard Kalenberg about affirmative action. Up next is our weekly music segment on the What's What podcast that delivers the latest music news. We have WFUV's Rosie Lenz here to tell us about all the latest headlines. Madonna is postponing the start of her celebration tour. And why is that, Rosie? Unfortunately, the singer was diagnosed with a serious infection that's keeping her in the ICU. Her tour was supposed to begin July 15th with stops in Canada, the United States, Mexico, Europe, and the UK. Are there any updates on when the tour will be rescheduled? They don't actually know yet. Her manager promised to keep fans updated with any news. A preview of Taylor Swift's version of her song, Speak Now, is currently being loved by fans. A snippet of the song previewed in the trailer for the upcoming new season of The Summer I Turned Pretty. The full Speak Now album isn't scheduled to be released until July 7th, but fans of the show got a sneak peek of her song. Swifties who cannot wait until July 7th can catch the release part of the song by searching the Summer I Turn Pretty Season 2 trailer. And what else have you got for us? Finally, Adele has a message to all concert goers. She's telling her fans to stop throwing things at artists. What exactly prompted Adele to say that? Well, recently it seems fans have been a bit out of control when it comes to throwing things at performers. There's the phone with Vivirexa, Lil Nas X and an inappropriate object, and in a recent concert, Someone threw their parents' ashes on stage while Pink was performing. That's so awful that fans are throwing things at artists, especially when they're singing live. I know. Adele is calling out these fans for the lack of stage etiquette. These artists are there to perform, but their safety matters too. Mm, I wish more fans thought like that. Rosie, as always, thanks for keeping us in the loop. See you next week. Thanks for having me. See you next week. And in some sports-related history, on this day in 1975, Arthur Ashe became the first black man to win the London-based tennis tournament, Wimbledon. 
Even though Ash claimed victory, he was actually considered a massive underdog against his opponent, Jimmy Connors. The Food Bank for New York City has recently been talking about period poverty. I sat down with lawmakers and advocates to talk about how they're raising awareness about the issue. The Food Bank for New York City recently convened lawmakers and advocates at their Woman to Woman panel to discuss the inaccessibility of menstrual products. Advocates have coined this disparity, period poverty, which refers to the struggle for low-income and unhoused women to buy menstrual products because they're economically out of reach. Gillian Lubarski is the Director of Communications at the Food Bank for New York City. She says holding this event helped spotlight period poverty as a significant issue. And she says there are many short and long-term consequences if people cannot afford them. If someone isn't able to have the products they need while they have their period, it can result in missing school, missing work, and then that just catapults into not having a paycheck to afford rent or groceries or utility bills. But Lebowski says the Food Bank for New York City has been working with their partners to address this issue directly. We work to have people put together hygiene kits and, in fact, Over the last three months, we've collected over 1,900 hygiene kits. And these are Ziploc bags that people have put together. And of course, everything is unused, unopened, but it's basically a a period package. And it could last one to two months, depending on the individual. The distribution of free menstrual products can be life-changing for people who cannot afford them each month. That's according to Carrington Baker, founder and CEO of For Women by Women, period, a nonprofit organization advocating to end period poverty. Baker says she started her nonprofit in 2021 after realizing just how much of a financial burden period products can be. Because, of course, like if you can't afford food or a home, of course you can't um, afford menstrual products. I just never thought of it in that way. Baker says that not having adequate products also compromises the dignity of people who menstruate. She says they have to resort to other means. Women were using anywhere from socks to rags, paper towels, rolling up toilet paper to make tampons, like just anything they can get their hands on, essentially. And that was very upsetting. An issue that has stood out to Baker since her time with For Women, By Women, period, is the shame that still surrounds menstruation. She says this stigmatization around this seemingly taboo topic trickles down into societal conversation and aggravates period poverty. There's a lot of shame surrounding periods in the first place. So, of course, people who are in need of products aren't going to outright say, I need period products, because we don't even talk about our periods in general right now, like even if you are privileged to get these products. Baker says this is exactly why free period products and menstrual equity is needed in this field. And Jennifer Weiss-Wolf agrees. She's the executive director of the Birnbaum Women's Leader Center at the NYU School for Law. And she's actually the person to coin the term menstrual equity in the first place. At the time, she hoped it would raise awareness for lawmakers to pass menstrual equity legislation. Weiss-Wolf's been tackling period poverty for a decade. And in that time, she's seen how menstrual equity has been debated around the country. She says there are two key steps in solving period poverty. On a broad scale, passing legislation to reduce inequities, and in the meantime, distributing free period products to women in need. 
Even though New York City was the first jurisdiction in the entire country to pass legislation mandating free availability of menstrual products in key agencies, Weisswolf says there's so much more work to be done. And in states including Florida, including Idaho, legislation that has either focused on free period products or just information about menstruation has been derided as being too liberal. Weisswolf says these opinions aggravate the shame surrounding periods. She says the power to end period poverty and normalize conversations around menstruation ultimately rests on lawmakers. So ensuring that departments of education, departments of correction, uh, departments of emergency and homeless services um, are including menstrual products in their budgets for the people who interact with them, whether that's students, whether that's people who are detained or incarcerated. But there have been recent developments in New York. A new menstrual equity bill package has been introduced by the city council. This will include requiring the Department of Education and public schools to document how many menstrual products and bathrooms are available to students. But these progressions only pertain to New York. In states like Florida, lawmakers have a completely different approach. Weiss-Wolf says lawmakers looking to limit childhood education about periods only further stigmatizes it, which makes the issue of menstrual equity even more challenging to address. We really need to destigmatize menstruation. We need to be sure, again, that it's something that's not holding people back or creating barriers in ways we might not even know, appreciate, see, or understand, because we don't talk about it. So if we don't talk about it, we can't know what kinds of challenges people might be facing. I'm Maya Sargent, WFUV News. That was my co-host, Maya Sargent, talking to advocates about period poverty. And that's our show for today. But before we go, consider joining us for this year's FUV Boat Experience on August 18th. Join DJs Elisa Ali, Delphine Blue, and Benham Jones for a 90s-inspired night of dancing, trivia, and more. Spots on the cruise around Manhattan usually go fast, so make sure to grab your group of friends and your tickets today on Eventbrite. And don't forget to check back with us tomorrow at 3 o'clock for more news, music, culture, and more. And tell your friends so they can find WFUV's What's What at WFUVnews.org and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Maya Sargent. And I'm David Escobar. And that's What's What.